Maybe one of you has a wheelbarrow I could borrow next time. Yeah, my backpack. In our sermons, we have over the past few weeks considered names of God. And the names of God, uh, like the key that we looked at last time, the key of David, the root of Jesse, uh, wisdom, king. Today we're going to focus our attention on the name of God, the mighty one, the capable one, the powerful one, the one who can do what God promises. But what our discussion about names has brought up is that around tables, sometimes some of us have been talking about our family names. My family name uh, on my dad's side is, I think, interesting. We as a family have uh, both been honored and have been humored by it. My great-grandfather's name was Benjamin Franklin Purcell. Uh, his wife was Sophie L. We don't know that last name, but her wife, his wife. And they had several children, the first of which was Australia. She, uh, she is our, my great-grandmother, and she had several siblings, uh, Pocahontas, Powhatan, and then she had three sisters, Snow, Frost, and Ice. <laughs> uh, really? Uh, Snowdrop. Uh, Frosty Eula and Ice B. I think Ice B might have been an original rapper. I'm not sure, but um, so there were those names. Um, and so one time we were traveling uh, from the Midwest uh, up to Seattle, and we stopped in Iowa. I think it was Iowa where some of these relatives lived, and because my dad wanted to meet Aunt Snow, he'd never met her. So we get to her house, what we think is her house. He goes up to the door, knocks on the door. Sure enough, an older lady, uh, well into her 90s, white hair, uh, opens the door and kind of looks at him. And he looks at her and said, are you my Aunt Snow? And she says, well, I reckon so, but who are you? Um, and then he tells her, and we go in, and we meet her, and uh, chat with her for a while. But those names, uh, there's, there's a bit of a hesitancy on his part, are you my Aunt Snow? And on her part, well, I reckon, not sure, but maybe so. When we come to the names of God, when we come to these names like the Root of Jesse, or the Key of David, or the Mighty One, there's no hesitancy on God's part. God knows us, God cares for us, God loves us. We may have some hesitancy about how we relate to God, some hesitancy about what to call God. There are so many names in Scripture. But there's no hesitancy on God's part. And so I want to read for you from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And this is Mary's understanding of what's happening, what God is doing uh, in her life, in Elizabeth's life. This is called the Magnificat. It's the Mary's song. Um, and let me read it for you. It comes from Luke's Gospel, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 1, beginning at verse 46. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For God has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. 
Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one, the, the capable one, the powerful one, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Delian Copes might be right. Delian was a um, pastor here with us, retired now, still does uh, Connect Four. And she once made the comment from this pulpit that those texts which foreground women ought to be preached by women. Well, she's probably right. <laughs> so what am I doing here? Huh? Um, but there are other people that can make some uh, interesting comments about those kind of texts, and I want to do so today with some fear and trembling, knowing that many of you know the inner workings of what's going on in Mary's life and Elizabeth's life much more than I would ever um, understand. What I want to suggest, well, what I am suggesting to you is that Mary is a model disciple. She is an example of what it means to be a follower of God, a follower later of Jesus Christ. And so in that understanding of Mary as a model, what we see is that her openness to God is exemplary. So when the angel Gabriel came and spoke with her, uh, she was quite perplexed. She didn't know quite what was going on. But she ended up by saying to the angel, um, let it be uh, according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. Her willing obedience. Um, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's really the beginning place of discipleship. If we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we're going to be followers who somehow let the world know about the love of God in Jesus Christ, that's a starting point. Here I am, servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. So I would make a plea, if you can call it a plea this morning, let's give Mary a chance. You know, as Protestants, we, don't, we, we probably undervalue Mary. Uh, Catholics uh, tend to venerate Mary in, in many positive ways. Uh, often we tend to downplay Mary's role and Mary's uh, discipleship and, and model uh, of discipleship. Um, I think we can let go of that. We can let go of what we can call something like Protestant Presbyterian prejudice against Mary. Um, no, this is a critically important person in the life, obviously, in the life of early Christianity and in our life as well. And as we look at her, we'll look at her uh, from this standpoint of being a model disciple. 
Now, one of, the, one of the questions that kind of hangs over this whole discussion about Mary is, she has said, uh, here I am, the servant of the Lord, let it happen to me according to your word. Have we ever said that? Is that our statement to God? Here I am, understanding ourselves to be a servant of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ, a servant of the Lord. Let it happen to me according to your word, according to your will. That's really the foundation point, it seems to me, the foundation point of discipleship in the Christian understanding. The focus today, then, is on Mary. It's on Mary's life, and I want to talk about it under three uh, particular words. Mary's piety, Mary's politics, and Mary's, or Mary's remembrance of God's promise. I would define it in this way. This would be, if I had a thesis statement, this is my thesis statement. Mary's personal piety opens her to the radical politics of God and the ancient promises of God to Israel. Mary's personal piety opens her to the radical politics of God and the ancient promises of God to Israel. By piety, I mean personal devotion. I mean commitment to God. Uh, growth in her relationship with God. I know this is an old-fashioned word, and I don't mean by it some kind of piousness, uh, false piety, or something like that, even like Uriah Heep and Dickens' uh, David Copperfield. Uh, there's no worse person in literature, I think. He's just slimy. Um, it's not that. This is piety. This is personal devotion. This is commitment to the Lord, uh, the Mighty One, as she understands it. By politics, I mean the way Mary sees the world, the power structures in the world, and God's activity to bring about mercy and justice in our world. Mary has embraced God's politics. If we can call what we see here politics or kingdom living, however you want to frame it, uh, Mary has embraced that, and it reflects kingdom ethics uh, throughout. And by promise, I mean Mary's knowledge of God's promise of old, her understanding of Scripture, most of what she has spoken and what Luke is recording here are Scripture passages. These are passages of Scripture that she has memorized. She knows her Scripture. And here they are, God's promises made to Israel years earlier, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So look with me at Mary's, at Mary's piety how she understands her relationship with God. In the first place, Mary is quite shocked. She is shocked that she has been chosen, as Elizabeth tells her, as the mother of my Lord. That's a shock to her. She doesn't expect it. Now, we don't know how old Mary is. We don't know any of those kind of details, necessarily. Um, but we know that she is humble. We know that she is uh, simply a servant of the Lord. We know that um, she is young, at least young-ish. And when she hears about this name, Mary, um, the mother of my Lord, I think it still throws her into confusion. She's perplexed, like she was with the, um, uh, the greeting from 
uh, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. Let it be to me according to your word. The result of that is that Mary magnifies the Lord. Now think of Mary as a magnifying glass. And think of yourself, frankly, as a magnifying glass. What happens when somebody looks at your life? What happens when somebody looks at Mary's life and they see Mary and as a magnifying glass, they see that through her, they see God even larger and larger. They see God's mercy. They see God's care. They see God's compassion. And they see that God is larger than they thought. And when they look at us, do they do the same? In other words, when somebody sees us and knows that we're a Christian, knows that we're a disciple of Jesus Christ, knows that we're a follower of Christ, when they look at us and they see the magnifying glass of us, do they see God enlarged? Do they see God's mercy and grace and kindness and generosity? Or, which too often happens, they see how small God is. They see that God is really narrow because of our prejudice or because of our unkindness or because of our slurs that we make, either gender or racial slurs that we make. They see that God is really narrow and if God is like that, I mean, if, if this person worships the God that's like that, I don't want to worship God that's like that. So think of this in terms of Mary magnifying the Lord and your life enlarging what people know about God because of the way that you live, because of the way that you interact, because of the way that you love and care. So Mary's piety comes in, in the first place from understanding that she is a servant of the Lord and she is willing to be open to the fullness of the Spirit of God as she lives her life. She also was able to take uh, a socially uh, very difficult situation, pregnancy outside of marriage, and embrace it as something that God could use in a way that she never expected. This is not the normal kind of thing that happens in, uh, in families. And Mary has now taken this, and it seems to me that this is part of her piety, that she is able to take that horrible what could have been horrible experience, um, socially ostracizing experience, and see God's hand can use it for, for good. And again, I would say that's part of her personal piety. It's part of, I think, our own. How can we take the experiences that we have as individuals and as a community and make sure that God can use them for the sake of of the kingdom. Mary is magnifying the Lord by her life. She is praising God uh, because of what God is doing. That's the personal piety of Mary. But what about the radical politics of Mary? When we speak of politics of Mary being radical, I'm not suggesting that Mary is a social reformer. I, I don't think she was. But she sees God working to turn the world right side up. The world is upside down. The world in its commitments, uh, in its values, in its ideas is simply um, upside down. Uh, it's out of sync with itself. 
and with God. Its values of power and money, its commitments of pleasure and advancement of some kind, its ideas of nationalism, materialism, consumerism, whatever it is, it's upside down without Christ. Christ is not turning the world upside down, even though in Acts it says these people are turning the world upside down, these Christians. Jesus is really turning the world right side up. And the ethics of the kingdom that Jesus has come to demonstrate and come to live and come to share are turning the world right side up. And that's what Mary has embraced. You know, it's interesting. Um, Mary is, the, Mary's song is not a nice little devotional uh, song for the day. It's really a radical uh, political agenda, if we can call it that. Uh, back in 2018, there was an article in the Washington Post. The Washington Post said this, Revolutionaries, the poor, and the oppressed all love Mary, and they emphasized her glorious song. But the Magnificat has been viewed as dangerous by people in power. Some countries, this was new to me, some countries such as India, Guatemala, Argentina, have outright banned the Magnificat from being cited in liturgy or in public. That's how dangerous Mary's song is. It has been banned on the political front in numerous countries. Now we can see this in a couple of ways, not the banding of it, but we can see Mary's song in a couple of ways. One is we can take it as something uh, to spiritualize. And uh, Kathleen Norris does that. I think it's, it's fair to do that. It doesn't exhaust its meaning. I'll show you that in a minute. But it, I think it's fair. What, what she says is sometimes she could sing this song and it's simply um, a nice uh, evening kind of sleepy song for her. But then she says this. On other nights, they were a mother's words probing uncomfortably into my life. How rich had I been that day? How full of myself? Too full to recognize need and hunger, my own or anyone else's? So powerfully providing for myself that I couldn't admit my need for the help of others? Too busy to know a blessing when it came to me? So we can look at the song that way and spiritualize it in the sense of understanding it as a personal kind of um, uh, challenge to us as we live our life. But listen to what uh, Elizabeth uh, Schusler firenze says about this. And she'll put it in a, in a macro context. Most of those who are poor, who do not know where they will get food to still their hunger, who cry and hear the crying of their children, then as now are women and children dependent upon women. Those who are dying of starvation and are desperate because they see no way out of their poverty into the future are promised the basileia, the kingdom. The promise of the kingdom to the beggared and the destitute affirms that God will make their cause God's own concern. God is on their side against all those who trample down their rights. 
Now she goes on to talk about poverty and sometimes we see poverty as personal failure. Uh, somebody didn't live right or didn't do things right and so they don't have the money they need to have. She says, in Israel, poverty was understood as injustice. Since Yahweh is the owner of the land and has given it to the care of all the people, the poor of Israel are, treat, are cheated out of their rightful inheritance. And so the prophets rail against this, right? And then she says this, Neither the Magnificat of Mary nor the Beatitudes speak of punishment for the rich, but rather of eschatological reversal. This is Jesus turning things right side up. This life and the life of the Basileia of the kingdom are seen as a continuous whole. In other words, what we are living now is, and, and meant to be living now, is for the future, the fullness of God's kingdom. We're not going to bring it in in that sense, but we're going to move in the direction that it will be in completeness. That's what we do. That's why God has taken on the side of those who are so desperate. Well, Mary's radical politics. Putting the world right side up. You know, we sing about this. The choir sings about this uh, from Isaiah. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill brought low. The uneven ground, right, will become level. And the rough places smooth. This is a, a, a reversal that's taking place symbolized by the landscape becoming level so that everybody has the same level playing field to live on. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Mary understands God is doing throughout history. The mighty one has come. The one who is capable not only to change hearts, but to work on systemic issues. Because the kingdom is God's and it's going to encompass all. Well, I think the reason that Mary has such a deep sense of piety, personal piety, and radical politics is because she remembers something. She remembers the promise of God. She puts her weight down on the promise of God. She understands that God is capable and God can hold her belief and her unbelief, her perplexity. God can handle it. God can take it all. And the promises of God of old are now in a new way beginning to be fulfilled in her life and in Elizabeth's life and in Anna's life and others as we go through the text. The promise of God to Israel, to Abraham, and his seed, and Sarah and her seed. So here we have Mary. The problem for us is that often we live with broken promises. There are broken promises, and so we say, we can, how can we trust? How can we trust our neighbor, our friend, our children, our parents, our spouses, when they break promises? The assuring, assuring thing about God that Mary understands is that even if, as Mark said last week, it takes a long time for God to fulfill those promises, to open that key, nonetheless, God will fulfill God's promises 
Mary banks on it. She counts on it. And we do too. Well, names are important. The names of our family, the names of God. And this name, the mighty one, the powerful one, the capable one, the one who is working in our life and in our midst, is something that we can depend on as well. Mary's personal piety, her devotion and commitment to God, opens her to the radical politics of God, to kingdom living, who is turning the world right side up. And the ancient promises of God shown in mercy to Israel and to all who put their faith in God. Mary becomes a model disciple. She lives by God, the mighty one, the capable one, and she still has much to teach us. Amen.